try, just try with your athletes, extreme anterior tilt, and then see how much pelvic or internal external femoral rotation you get in standing on one leg and then posterior to tilt and try just experiment with yourself and, and you'll experience some of this, that the body is set up, man, it needs to rotate the pelvis and list the pelvis to be fast. That's kind of what it was designed to do. So this anti-rotation, anti, I believe me guys, 10 years, I, I preached it because I was a therapist and you know what a therapist is taught? Yeah. Anti, 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 because we're stable, stable, stable. We need to create this neutral spine and stabilize it. So that all our protocols and everything is around stable, 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 wrong word, probably control uh, or, you know, uh, motion, uh, controlled motion or, or optimized motion should probably be the approach and not let's just stabilize the tar out of it and make everything else move around this fictitious stable pelvis, which is, it's mind numbing that we still do that. That was Lance Walker and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Uh, whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle. I And not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So uh, I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the uh, the feeling of training of while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode. Thank you for being here with us today. In looking at what makes athletes operate at a high level, we can't go too far without looking at the actions of the pelvis and the spine. And when we get into some of these uh, more complex, well, all joints in the body are certainly complex, but some of the things and actions and the way it moves and rotates, uh, it's really helpful to talk with people who not only have strength and conditioning and human performance knowledge, but also people who have knowledge of anatomy, physiology, and concepts that you might find more in the rehabilitation realm. Our guest today has both of those things. Lance Walker is the Global Director of Performance at the Michael Johnson Performance Center. There he designs and implements performance training programs for youth, college, and professional athletes across a multitude of sports. Lance is also a current registered physical therapist in the state of Texas, and he has a unique blend of skills and lenses by which to observe athletic performance. Prior to Michael Johnson's performance, Lance served in both the public or the university and private sectors as a strength and conditioning coach and also has time serving in the professional ranks, being an assistant strength coach with the Dallas Cowboys for several years. For today's show, Lance will take us on a journey of hip function and how that function ties into sprinting and athletic movement. He'll take those pelvic concepts and go into the weight room. What are we seeing in bilateral squatting? How might the pelvis be impacted by split squatting? And could there even be negative things that come out of split squatting that we might see show up in the hips if we're not doing it correctly? Lance will also talk about how using horizontal resistance and combining that with vertical exercises can drive unique and specific adaptations for athletes. Lance will talk about the hip flexors and their role of power performance. And finally, Lance will get into some key strength movements to help athletes achieve better pelvic function for speed and resiliency. It was awesome talking to Lance because not only do you get the knowledge that comes from strength and conditioning and physical therapy and working with loads of athletes, but also wisdom that comes from decades in the field. Lance was fantastic to talk to, and I really enjoy his perspective on human performance. Before we get started, one thing that Lance talks a lot about in the first half of the show is pelvic listing. 
and that's simply hip hiking in the frontal plane. If you were standing and had both legs perfectly straight, that listing or hip hiking would just be lifting one foot off the ground without bending your legs at all. Uh, and the, the, what the pelvis would have to do to facilitate that action. So hopefully that's a good definition for you because that is something you will hear a lot in this show. And let's get on to it. Episode 273 with Lance Walker. Lance, with your, uh, with your background in physical therapy and a lot of the, the um, knowledge that comes from that, I'm curious on um, how that has bled into what you look at in the weight room and then in sprinting. Um, and I want to ask you specifically from a perspective of the pelvis and the spine. Uh, when I think we talk a lot about anterior tilt in the weight room, like we want to avoid excess anterior tilt or being stuck in anterior tilt. And then in sprinting, though, there are you have to anterior tilt to be able to put force down into the ground and the good sprinters tend to be have biases or the ability to create that anterior tilt in the process of sprinting. I'm curious just how you look at those two mediums, like with the loaded, an athlete who's loaded uh, with a bar uh, on their back or off the ground, and then what you see in sprinting with a pelvic perspective. Um, maybe just to make this question more clear, because I tend to get Sometimes I get a few different directions in my questions is just talk about the the pelvis and pelvic position and what you look for in sprinting and then what you look for in the weight room. Yeah, I think to be honest, the pelvis is is sort of that that key that key that key thing, that driver, that engine. And so much is going on at the pelvis. We learned as a, as physical therapists when treating and diagnosing dysfunction that I'm able to leverage a lot of that towards um Towards performance and most of the physical therapy space that I, you know, was was trained in and was around gait, you know, just basic gait um, sort of abnormalities and and um, and dysfunction. And so when you look at basic gait as a therapist, you know, we're fortunately we weren't we weren't trained in the sagittal plane to look at the pelvis and the sagittal plane, which was a good thing because I think that's what ninety nine a high percentage of folks maybe that are listening, therapists and coaches still do. As we look at pelvis in the sagittal plane, you know, the side view, and that's how we, we judge it. And man, we didn't do that in physical therapy school and in neuro rehabilitation or any of the other fellowships or, or you don't do that. You evaluate it in three dimensions. And that goes from sacral, you know, torsions, SI dysfunction, innominate rotations, uh, pubic symphysis, you know, things. I mean, there's, it's a three-dimensional thing. And so that has been a very important leverage point for me as a, as a, as a coach, because I was a coach before I was a therapist, right? So I wasn't a therapist that moonlights as a coach. I was a coach first. I was a coach for six years before I went to PT school. So I knew that this, there was something there with that pelvis because I'd watched, I watched humans move and these elite humans Man, that, that is an engine for them, for, you know, speed wise. Um, but also it was a, the guy's got a, you know, spondylolisthesis. Um, you look at him squatting and other things, and there's a, there's a real good chance that we've exacerbated that because of sagittal, what we look at in the sagittal plane in terms of anterior tilt, posterior tilt. So that's key number one. It's three-dimensional. Uh, I think key number two is that um, loading the spine vertically uh, either in extreme posterior tilt or extreme anterior tilt, um, repetitively, uh, probably does some things to either disc on the one side or facets on the other side. And I'm living proof. I've got a, a bilevel spondylolisthesis grade two. Uh, so that means it's, I've got some slippage. Okay. And when mine slips, um, when it moves, when it gets inflamed, yeah, I lose, I lose some sensation and some function in my right leg and it's scary as hell. Um, when did I get that? It wasn't a all of a sudden thing. It was repetitive stress. It was a repetitive stress fracture that created that spondylolisthesis. Was it because I was anteriorly tilted when I squatted? Was it, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to say, I don't know, probably a hundred times here. I don't know. I'll tell you this much though. If I squat or deadlift a guy in the weight room that has an active or even a dormant spondy in an anterior tilt long enough, I will inflame them. I know that from a, for a fact. Now, if I posteriorly tilt them to a point that I'm safe from the facet, what am I doing on the flip side? Because you know what else I got? I got a disc degeneration. So do you. So do all of your athletes. We all have disc degeneration. And that scares people. Wait a minute, what? 
Yeah, it's like arthritis. Those discs are degenerating. So you're robbing Peter to pay Paul if you try to. So then you hedge to, oh, I'll just stay in the middle. And the middle, as you say, is, is it depends. It's different for everybody. I will say this. Middle is not level. Uh, in the weight room or in the track world, we just see it. Middle is not this level, completely don't spill the water pelvis. It's just not. And I think those of you that like research, the research would bear that out. The percentage of tilt, you know, for lifting and loading and all that. I don't know what that that number is, but it's not a level pelvis. Um, but it's the extremes of anterior and posterior that I think get get folks in trouble. The key, though, is the 3D. So not just looking at anterior posterior. It's that whatever that level is, which is slightly anterior, that optimizes this, that optimizes rotation and pelvic rotation and pelvic listing side to side action of pelvis. That's the holy that to me, that's the holy grail. So what is that pelvic positioning that optimizes your power and, and movement production optimally in rotation, as well as listing, which is this, you know, this, if I, you're looking at me from the front, this up and down, I don't know, you know how much your you know, listeners talk about listing, but I, it was something in PT school we talked a lot about. Um, those two things from a speed standpoint are things that are not aberrant. Those are what fast people do. Uh, and to, to try to, oh, we're going to level the pelvis perfectly or, or worse, let's dip it completely posterior. That's just try it. That's going to limit rotation. And it, because it's going to limit rotation in your femurs and it's going to limit rotation in your lumbar spine because you're not in that optimum position there. And it's going to limit listing all at the, at the sake of trying to level a pelvis because you've heard that from us sprint coaches for years that you got to have a posteriorly tilted pelvis. And then you start looking at your athletes from the front coming out of the blocks or coming out of a 40 yard start and you see their, their free leg, their swing leg adduct across their body and internally rotate. And what do we do? Us smart coaches. That's wrong, isn't it, Joel? That's you, that needs to be coming straight ahead. That that backside hip flexion, right? Track coaches that are listening, you know, your fast ones. It's crossing the midline. That femur is internally rotated. That pelvis is listing and rotating on the downside leg to create force. Go ahead and tweak that and see what happens. Besides performance decrement. Yeah, now you're talking about stress responses in other areas too. So we're sacrificing this to go get something that maybe we don't need to mess with at all. Um, and that that pelvis, pelvis motion, rotation, and listing. That's that's my focus now, from both from a dysfunction standpoint and a speed standpoint, that we're going to optimize that and be less concerned about the, the anterior posterior tilt. Let's let's attack it from the back, you know, the back door instead of the, you know this, this thing here. Um, but uh, that's kind of big and deep, simple. Yeah. Try, just try with your athletes, extreme anterior tilt, and then see how much pelvic or internal external femoral rotation you get in standing on one leg and then posteriorly tilt and try just experiment with yourself. And, and you'll experience some of this, that the body is set up, man, it needs to rotate the pelvis and list the pelvis to be fast. That's kind of what it was designed to do. So this anti-rotation, anti, I believe me guys, 10 years, I, I preached it because I was a therapist and you know what a therapist is taught? Yeah. Anti, anti, anti. Cause we're stable, stable, stable. We need to create this neutral spine and stabilize it. So that all our protocols and everything is around stable, 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 wrong word, probably control uh, or, you know, uh, motion, uh, controlled motion or or optimized motion should probably be the approach and not let's just stabilize the tar out of it and make everything else move around this fictitious stable pelvis, which is it's mind numbing that we still do that. Yeah. It's um I feel like it's more um just just with the stabilize everything, the anti everything, it's almost this like just mentality. If I'm a strength coach, every joint has to be able to resist force. And it's like yeah, they do, but like that doesn't mean that you have to constantly train the body that way. David Weck, when he was on the episode, it was early hundreds, talked about that not um, the body not needing to stop, or when does the body actually stop a rotational force in practice? It doesn't happen. Like 
And so it's, uh, yeah, I, ever since that episode, I just, and every time I'm around like physical therapists, you kind of listen. It's like a lot of times you hear that, oh, we're going to brace this and brace that. And I'm like, do you really need to <laughs> when, you're, uh, when you're actually sprinting, you know? Yeah. I love David. I, I, he's taken a lot of flack, I think, for some of his, you know, wild, you know, conjurings of things. In a lot of cases, a lot of what he's saying is it's, it's hopefully at least raising, like it's raised your awareness that dang, let's not fall into that. This is the way, this is the research, this is the whatever, this is, you know, be a little bit more critical of that. I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I really do. It's not a wholesale go this way or that way, but it's, it's definitely something I think we can appreciate. And the one thing I like from David and others that are out there making noise is they're not just looking in the sagittal plane. And I think we do that as coaches, as therapists, as researchers, everything's sagittal, 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 sagittal. Let's look at the sagittal. And Speed athletes, and I'm talking about from 100 meter dashers to soccer athletes. That rotation is uh, it's happening, <laughs> and if you try to you try to put them in a sagittal you know sagittal framework all the time, you're gonna you're gonna disallow what the body was designed to actually do to produce some of that speed that you're we're all chasing. Yeah, for sure. The, the listing too, just I think in in terminology that might be more familiar. I know. Um... With what you're saying with the start, like there's that uh, hip lock mechanism by Franz Bosch, but also like the just hip hiking in the frontal plane. Is that what you're talking about with listing? Just yeah, plane. and the right hip hike, right? I mean, if your yeah. foot drives into the ground, it lists to, it, to create that real stiff, stiff thing. And then as it, what it almost does is on the open chain side, it's listed up as the swing leg comes forward. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and and that, in that instance, what if you look at it in the sort of in the sort of closed chain look and it lists when one side lists the femur on that side, when it lists up, what does that femur do? It adducts. It's not the adductor that's doing it. It's not the adductor that's driving the adduction. So that crossing and midline, it's the listing. It's that pelvis. And does the adductor hook to the pelvis? Yeah. So those muscles are helping with that, but it's not this adduction thing. It's a listing thing that creates that relative adduction and sets you up for a great iliopsoas firing instead of the long, you know, the rectus femur just being by itself. And now you get this really aggressive internal rotation. It's almost like you're setting the, you know, you're setting the spring so that when you throw it, what does it do? Abducts, externally rotates and extends. And when it hits the ground, it's still rotating. The pelvis is rotating. It's listing down to create stiffness abduction right but the opposite happens like when you work with runners i don't know if you work with runners that have knee pain or hip pain what happens when their foot hits the ground it lists the other way doesn't it it, it has this weird wonky sort of trendelenburg thing where it's you know there, there's something wonky with that listing and so that's some dysfunction with that that's not a list it's a lack of listing does that make sense so it's a it's an well he's listing but he's opposite listing or uh, the list is not active at the pelvis it's just this passive thing that when the foot hits the ground, it actually is pushing the pelvis into a list. What I'm talking about is the activation of those things that, that create some of that list. And I think that's something that, you know, as a therapist, we weren't, we didn't know what we were, we were talking about neuro, neurological rehab mainly, you know, people that have had, you know, cerebral vascular accidents is where I learned a lot of that and cueing some of that pelvic motion to, to restore function. I learned that. I learned that in neuro rehab setting. Dealing with, with cerebrovascular accident patients, trying to get them back walking again. And so much of that cueing to get them back was up here at the pelvis. I mean, it was amazing to watch the, and you practitioners that are out there, you may know some of these therapists that are doing that work. Amazing work, but they figured it out. You got a cue at the pelvis and the pelvis begins to drive uh, a lot of that stiffness and rotation and all that stuff that really transfers down into the chain. So would you, would you say with the pelvis? Well, actually, I, I do want to go back to the weight room question just briefly before I forget it. And, and I, I would agree. I think that people who tend to look at the weight room and, and squatting and deadlifting is this holy grail. And I think it's good to be strong, but it's like that's a very sagittal looking thing. You know, it's bilateral. You're going to see a lot of sagittal stuff and you don't expose yourself to seeing the 3D nature of the, mm -hmm. the pelvis by right. just looking at that. So what I, I guess I'll ask from the nature of I mean, and that is the big dissection too between squatting and deadlifting and sprinting is you're going from a more 2D oriented thing to, oh, now you're 3D pelvis. 
And so with the whole anterior tilt thing, I mean, is that not as big of a deal to you in the weight room unless someone's symptomatic? Like basically if you're symptomatic, that's like, okay, now we'll talk about the variations and how we're approaching this. Or how would you, uh, first off, but it's just coming back to that, how would you approach that? And then we'll talk more about like the 3D pelvis stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one simple thing, and, and I know there's probably some listeners that just take, hey, give me something simple I can take home. Here's one. For us, squatting at MJP, we find your depth of squat. And your depth is unweighted. You sit down on a box. Thighs are you're deeper than parallel. And we start from there and see if you can stay in that somewhat, you know, anteriorly tilted position, not dumped open, but not butt wing. And we start with an unloaded position to find out what your anatomically available range is there. Uh, and then we, we bring that to that level where that's as deep as they can squat in, in their body weight pattern, Be, mainly because it's uh, some of it's anatomy, right? Your, your pelvis, your femurs and things are different. But uh, what we find is a lot of times that's a, that's a motor control thing that they've got to learn. So in some cases we'll actually unweight them with the a Kaiser pulley or something. And you'll, they'll squat to that depth with that nice, you know, stable, uh, somewhat anteriorly tilted pelvis all the way, you know, butt to ankles. And that tells us that, wow, that's a control thing. So now when we add load back onto that, we want to squat, we want to deadlift at the deepest that we can, the most available range of motion. We want to keep those fascicles, uh, as long as possible. We don't want to shortchange those fascicles links, but it's within what they can, they can control. Um, and so a lot of times it's a motor control piece for us that we identify depth of squat. So that's one, two unilateral training, right? Everybody's that's unilateral, unilateral. And I love unilateral training. Um, that's not new. It's been around a long time and, and, and everybody that does it now will tell you that one thing to be cautious of as a therapist is, um, when you load unilaterally, let's say you're doing a, a rear foot elevated split squat as an example. I know very popular, we use it. You must understand that what you are creating with the, the, the leg split and now applying load is you are actually creating torsion at the pelvis. You're creating lumbosacral torsion. And you might say, well, is that, that sounds bad. It's not bad. Some of that torsions, you know, is a good thing. However, you're also relying in a lot of cases on the ligamentous structure of your pelvis and your hip joints to provide some of that stability. You know, it's, oh, it's, it's easier on their back when they do split squat. Yeah, I can attest to that. Spondylolisthesis, I can't back squat. I can't. I've got the control. My body gets to a point it says, Pshit. no, dump that. Split squat all day long, all day long, as heavy as I want to go to the point that I start torsioning my SI joint. And then you know what I walk away from? Either a pelvic upslip or some sort of pelvic torsion. That is, that's how I'm gaining my stability in that with the back leg on the ground. So then you go to the individual squats by themselves, one leg with the other leg off the ground. Now you're really having to call in, I think, some of those more, those more motor control patterns um, and less reliance on the ligamentous structure of the pelvis. I mean, I'll, most of your listeners are probably too young to remember there was a, um, there was a, a period of time where a major university in the old big eight conference where I used to play, they went, they, they did a whole lot of what was called ground-based movements where they were doing all ground-based things and wonderful, you know, that we were moving that direction. So rows and, you know, single legs, everything was, was ground-based and then mainly in a split stance and um, a great movement happened there. It really helped our profession. However, there was also this incredible increase in pubic symphysis issues. At this particular school, we saw it at the University of Oklahoma as well. Um, so it was this mad rush to load this, you know, this split stance stuff, knowing that, yeah, man, man nobody hurt their back anymore. And it's more functional. And it's, it, you know, it, of course, it's wonderful. We were relying on the ligamentous structure of the pelvis to stabilize it. So how do you get away from that? Um, I think, again, it starts with that motor control and you're, you're watching, but not in the sagittal plane. So Coaches, go around behind your athletes doing rear foot elevated split squats next time and look for these. It's not, it doesn't take a therapist to see some of these things starting to happen. You're going to see a little bit of listing. You're going to see a little bit of rotation. What's happening here? What's happening at the bottom of that? Because the minute you dump or posteriorly tilt, again, we talked about it. 
that's going to change up your ability to list, your ability to rotate. So I like some of the things that, that Bosch speaks about in his book around motor control uh, in those split stands, because it does, it drives up that demand um, in an unstable way or in a unique way that I really like. And it's less about the absolute load going through the system initially as it is um, that motor control. And we'll get into it. I know about how strong is strong enough and all that, but, but so much of what we're learning, I think, is around this sort of control and less about just absolute absolute loads. And that single leg stuff is one that'll fool you into believing that you're, boy, look how much more stable they are. Yeah. Yeah. You're, there's a cost to that uh, at some level at, when it comes to the ligament structure of your pelvis and sacral torsions and that sort of thing. Some good, some, we don't know. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about uh, hypnosis and mental training for athletes. Uh, while talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I had heard a coach had told me about that idea of the Rifidelated Split Squad about maybe three, four years ago and that, that what that could create. But I never heard anything outside of that more than just the theory, just saying, oh, this could be bad. And I was like, okay, yeah. okay, cool. Like anything could be bad, right? Like, right, it's, that's it's, exactly right. If I brush my teeth too much, I mean, yeah. my wife's a dentist. If I brush my teeth too much, my teeth will fall out. So it's a good <laughs> thing just done too much or, you know, in the wrong way. If I turn the bristles out and brush, I brush five times a day, I still get cavities. So on the rear foot elevated split squat, as an example, do we know? Um, I don't know the torsion stuff. There's, there's. If you yeah. like research, there's a lot of research on torsion, list, all that stuff, sacral torsion with with sprinting, and um, and and even specifically on block starts and things. So there, we know torsion happens. So to say that we got to eliminate torsion, I mean, again, that's that pendulum swing. Like, oh, let's just fuse everything together. If you fused your pelvis, if you fused your sacrum. I mean, we're talking about micro amounts of movement. But when you take those little micro things away, again, it starts to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a cumulative thing. I wish it was simple. Joel, gosh, darn it. I wish it was just simple and just do this. Um, I hopefully gave your guys a little bit of some simplicity there. Stop looking just in the sagittal plane. Start looking at your squats and your rear foots. Three dimensional at the pelvis. And I think you're, you're going to be like, oh, wow. Okay, I, I think I'm seeing some stuff here that I wasn't otherwise seeing just by looking for a butt wink, um, those sort of things, which are kind of the easy, you know, the easy ones to find. Yeah, um, and I was going to say too that the anecdote of the it was Oklahoma, like you, the injuries were there. Like that's why I, I'm glad you brought that up because again, like I was saying, like it's like just because I hear something, it's like okay, in theory I could see this, but as you're saying that, I was like, yeah, I, I mean, and I was thinking about my history with implementing that exercise with athletes, and I'm by nature have been more of a, I've always been a stickler with like, generally you stay on the lighter side versus the heavier side. If you have to pick, you know, using tempo as an ice. And what you're saying too, it makes me, I've been on a big isometric split squat kick lately, just both in, in just thinking about it. And uh, from uh, like going into my own systems too, and being forced to draw my own system and say, what do I believe about this? I really, I, I put this down on paper about a month and a half ago. It's like, if I'm talking split squats, I love just the, the if it's, uh, rear foot or both feet on the ground. I just love the isometric version of that because I, I just like I just like that that it's the critical point that you're working anyways and just working it isometrically. And once you get up to the top, what's actually happening there? Those kind of thoughts. But it also makes me appreciate um, yeah, I, or sprint coaches like Chris Corfus who have been on this. I don't know if he's talked about it on this podcast, but he loves like the an isometric split squat or like a hammer strength machine split squat or stuff that like. I almost feel like it's stuff where the mentality of just as heavy as possible, as forceful as possible will eventually bleed in. You, you know, you think you're getting away from it in a back squat or a deadlift, and then you do the same mentality in a split squat <laughs> or yeah. the rear foot. Yeah. I just think it's kind of funny. 
I had a, I had a coach, one of the best college strength coaches in the country. He's also one of the highest paid strength. I mean, he is, he is really, really good. Zero kinesiology background. He's a business major. And about 20 years ago, we were in the weight room talking and I said, Hey, we're going to do any core stability training. And he said, yeah, we just got done squat. I said, no, no, no. I don't think you understand uh, core, you know, stability stuff, you know, planks and you know, that stuff. And he said, no, I mean, we got all the core work we needed with that, with that squat. And at first I thought he was crazy. He's, you get a lot of core, you get a lot of core work uh, there to your point though. Is it, is it going to translate to when you split the stands? The other thing that I'm afraid I'm with you. I love the split stance stuff. I love the isometrics. Um, we've got to now also consider that most of that magic happens when the foot is off the ground and in the first 0.100 to 0.200 milliseconds when it hits the ground. Force development, rate of force development, stabilization, control from the open to the closed chain. I don't think we're getting it just with isometrics with our foot on the ground. I don't think we're getting it with isotonics. I don't think we're getting it with isokinetics. There has to be this open to closed chain, that hammer hits the road force thing, impulse, you want to call it, that we, that as therapists, we got to, we got to get into that space because that's, I think that's where the magic happens. And I think also that's where the, that's probably where the bad things happen too. I don't, I don't, you, you can't backdoor that and avoid that. That has got to be in, you know, in your, in your training. And I learned there's a guy named Joseph Coyne. Uh, a lot of your probably listeners know who Joseph is, a guy that went over in China and did a lot of great work with Randy Huntington over there. And something I learned from, from those guys um, with some of our work in China and just knowing those two was those real heavy minimum range step-ups, you know, real, real minimum range step-ups. And they're, the athletes are upright and they are, they're not, they don't have their foot on the box. They have their foot in the air and they're attacking the box with, I'm talking about two and three times body weight on the bar and creating that early and expressive impulse. Do that as a late stage rehab for pelvic problem, you know, lumbosacral problem, disc, whatever, spondylolisthesis. I can tell you it's diametrically different than any stabilization move you can do with a dead bug or anything, other thing. It's when the foot has to strike the ground and instantaneously create this stiff, rigid thing um, and also be able to control it with speed. That is the, for me, that's the holy grail. That's my next 28 years, hopefully, God, God willing is that magic space in that first 200 milliseconds. Yeah, I, I um, that's kind of like Alex Soter's ISO switch. If you're familiar with Alex's series, he's got like the ISO push in the, in the rack, just push as hard as you can in a sprint specific position. Then he'll do like the switches where he's kind of switching. It's like almost the in the air switches, but with a bar and creating that. And he'll look at like the gas truck recruit, you know, is there a pre-activation in this? And yeah, it gets me. I, I do know there's that research that with the Russian sprinters, it's like, I don't know if they were necessarily stronger given a second of force production time, but if it's one-tenth of a second, that's all you have. That's where they, those truly fast athletes can shine. So I definitely I definitely agree with that. I, I want to get to, actually, so with the follow-up, and you're talking about that, um, the way the body operates there, is if an athlete doesn't have like that um, that reciprocal action in the pelvis, and I think maybe a way to put it is some things I've been thinking about recently. I've worked with some athletes who really just struggle to run well. And I, one of the first places I look is the pelvis, the spine, do they have awareness there? And it looks like a lot of, a lot of athletes that I've been working with lately have a, basically it's like they're stuck in bilateral anterior tilt a little bit. Like I think it's good to get there, but it's almost like that's their only mode. Like the pelvis just stays there. It doesn't reciprocate back and forth. It just kind of stays in this bilateral anterior and it's a very shuffly run. And I've been loving uh, like Gary Ward stuff and the cogs and that system. I, I enjoy using that. Uh, what, um, so if an athlete presents and they, they just don't seem to have this reciprocation, what are some steps that you'll take them through to say, Hey, here's, here's how we get this thing moving and working and flowing in your, in your speed and your movement. Yeah. As experience has, has taken me to figure some of this stuff out. What I used to do old school was they're in anterior pelvic tilt because what I was, was trained. They have what they have weak abdomen muscles, weak rectus abdominis, and what? Tight hip flexors. So what do we do? Strengthen their abdomen and we stretch their hip flexors, right? I mean, that's what, that's what I used to do. I don't know if anybody does that anymore, but that's, yeah, that's attack those anterior pelvic tilters by doing that. Um, and yeah, you, you look at them and in a lot of cases, those folks that are 
locked into that anterior tilt may or may not present, I guess, with that, those two things, uh, you know, a lower, we used to do a, a leg lowering test in the open chain to see how much motor control you had before you had to dump into an anterior pelvic tilt. And I think that's an old NASM test. I think, I don't know if you guys, if that's a Mike Clark test that he developed it. It came from the old, uh, muscle testing and function books from the old, uh, the old PT curriculums, but we really like that test. And it basically, you know, the athlete is supine and they're just taking both legs. It's not functional for sprinting, but it gives us a, a clue. How much control do they have on their pelvis when those legs are dropping down? And if they get below 45, it starts becoming a really tough thing. And they can get to 30 before their pelvis dumps open. Um, that's pretty good control. Some of that's strength. Some of that's just control. You put somebody on there that is locked in into your pelvic tilt um, and no cueing at all and let them do that test. Mm -hmm. You know what's going to happen, right? Within 60 degrees of coming off of 90, they're at 60. And what happens? They're already in pelvic, anterior pelvic tilt to optimize link tension relationships of the things that may be what? Weak. So it's not tight. It's weak. And so in a lot of cases, these, these anteriorly tilted folks, we used to call them in, back in school, the, um, the guys with, used to wear jock straps back in the day. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but those are the guys that had the jock strap that was, looked like it was up around their set, you know, their shoulder blade. You know what I'm talking You know, they'd walk in the, in the facility and, they're completely dumped open, high jock strap. Those guys were fast though. They weren't, these weren't the slow guys. You know, these weren't the slow linemen with the dumped posture. They were anteriorly tilted. They were also the guys that would get hamstrings tweaked up. They'd get the little back, you know, twinges here and there. Um, but what we see clinically and now, you know, in our assessment of those folks when they do come in is a lack of control of pelvic control, but hip flexor strength. Believe it or not, the hip flexor strength is it's a thing. And there's a control factor to that. But there's also this this the pelvis is great at saying, hey, buddy, I know you're not as strong as you need to be to do this. I'll give you a little help on this link tension relationship thing. Now, I'm going to sacrifice my lumbar spine up here because, you know, he's OK. He's strong. He's got the set joints. He'll be fine. And the hamstring, you know, yeah, I'm so, unfortunately, you're going to have to lengthen at probably exactly the wrong time to make this work. But we're going to help you in this. And, and, and we see some of that. Is it across the board like that? No. But I can tell you, just stretching, stretching the hip flexors and strengthening the, you know, the abdominal wall doesn't correct those people. It just doesn't. I can tell you 28 years later, it doesn't. Does it hurt them? No. Is it good for them? Probably. But I think looking at it from a, it's a hip flexor strengthening thing and a pelvic control thing you attack it from that that spectrum um i think you'll see some some interesting maybe i mean maybe some of your listeners can hit me up and say lance you're a complete idiot that doesn't work try it it works for us and in a lot of cases it also is the back door to helping people that have spondies and have uh, chronic hamstrings because if you look at them they're dumped into anterior tilt and what do they look like when they're running like you said it was a would you call it a shuffling kind of a yeah, gait? It, yeah, it creates a shuffle because they're not reciprocal in the pelvis. All they can do is shuffle yeah. their feet. Basically. Yeah, a lot of a lot of backside washout, you know, and, and then when they get tired, what happens? It just exacerbates. Um, we do hip flexion strengthening and pow hip flexor power training. Uh, and I stole that from the Chinese. I'll be honest with you. I stole that directly from Chinese sprint coach. We were with, we were with uh, Su Bing Tian uh, early days. He was one of the first... Uh, Asian sprinter to get under 10 seconds. Yeah, 93. Um, track coaches. Amazing, right? We worked with him early days in Guangzhou uh, for several years. And that was something we brought back from China was, and they do a lot of hip flexor work, a lot of hip flexor strengthening. Randy Huntington does a lot of hip flexor strengthening. And so it's not just this helping with the, it's actually, a, there's, a, there's a helper there for the speed thing. Um, and if you're just squatting, go back to squats. If you're just doing bilateral squats, your hip flexors are firing at the bottom of that squat. They're not relaxed. They are co-contracting to help with what? Pelvic stability. Well, you're in bilateral. You're in bilateral. Are, is that the functional way that the hip flexor is going to stabilize the pelvis? It's probably not. It's going to be a. It's going to be a mover. It's going to be a. Let's load this sucker. So those hip flexors are. They used to be right. Don't 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 do what was it? Don't do sit ups um, with your feet hooked into something because you're just going to strengthen your hip flexor. Remember that? I'm, maybe I'm too old. Maybe yeah, that was that's, something. Well, I was that's just the um, 
that's like the Pavel. There's the Pavel Satsling ab Pavelizer thing where I don't remember what kind of setup it was. I had my athletes do it for like a year. I mean, it was cool, but it was almost too complicated. So I kind of, yeah. <laughs> but another one that we learned was when you're doing, we still do abdominal work. So we still do leg drops and dead bugs and crunches and all those. We still do that. And we've seen success mm-hmm. with that. Um, one of the things, a little trick for you guys, coaches at home, when you're doing your leg drop series, don't let your athletes put their hands under their pelvis. You know what I'm talking about? Like the oh, yeah. SEALs do in their training. If you're just trying to survive the session, that's a good technique to use. But what are you doing with your hand? You are providing a posterior tilt. You're providing a wedge to posteriorly tilt the pelvis that your abdomen doesn't have to control for. So you're actually untraining. You're actually going the opposite direction. You are, in my opinion, you're doing harm by training leg drops and leg lifts and scissor kicks and that is, that's a bad exercise. Don't do that because you are going to cause all kinds of torsions and compressions. The reason is because you're doing it, I think, wrong. Let's, let's, let's go back and get the hands away. Tell the athlete to stay more in that, whatever that shape is under their spine. And let's do a little bit more. Maybe it's progressing them from isometric drops to unilateral isometrics to, and then speed. And then you get them up on the wall and you've got the bungees and whatever, and you're ripping that hip flexor through space. You've at least done your diligence on the control factor uh, and haven't undone any of that learning with any of your, you know, mindless sort of let's let's do the Pac-Man abs and see how many reps we can get in 30 seconds. I mean, it's not as much an endurance thing at that point. It's for us. It's a control training thing in, in the face of fatigue. So that's where you see us. We come to our training on Fridays. They're still doing repetitions of those, you know. Why are they doing crunches and sit-ups and rotations and leg drops? No, that's all old school. You know, it's anti, anti, anti. And we're doing it for reps because what we see in sport is when fatigue sets in, your dumping of the anterior mm-hmm. pelvis almost, almost all the time. And those folks, it just gets worse and worse. And you see that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the finish of the, of the race, yeah. their chest gets barreled and they're wide open like this and they're just fighting well, what happens? What are you stressing there? Well, you're not very fast when you do that. You're overstriding. You all your stuff's on the back end. I can tell you from experience, my spondy will flare up horribly because I'm just jacking those facets back there. Um, all because I've I've run out of gas. I've, I'm I'm unable to maintain that control in the face of fatigue. So, Joel, that takes me full circle. S and C, strength and what? Conditioning. Why have we stopped conditioning? Why is that suddenly, oh, why, why, why is that? A, where, where did we forget that? How many of you coaches are good at conditioning, at conditioning, metabolics, stamina, local muscle um, endurance? How many of you are really dialed into that? Or are we just so dialed into perfect clean technique and rep set schemes for strength, power, tradition, whatever? Conditioning is an important part of what you just talked about. You have to be conditioned in order to, to help yourself in the face of fatigue, still be able to execute that. Your body will, it will compensate. It absolutely will. And when fatigue dumps on top of it, that's where you see, I see it, what you just talked about. I mean, complete, uh, complete fallout there. And it could be just as simple as a lack of conditioning. Golly, I said it, lack of conditioning. I oh, man, we are, we are not conditioning our athletes. I'll, I'll just go out there and say it. We're not. Don't tell me you are because we're, we're just not. I say it with tongue in cheek. Some of you are, um, but I don't think we are. I think conditioning may be the, maybe the next Holy grail in this whole profession is let's go back to that. Um, and, and learn about that more and, and involve ourselves more in dosing that. So it's also a scary point for a lot of coaches because, Oh God, Krebs cycle. And all that. yeah, we do need to simplify that. I think as a profession to, to get after that, but got on a tangent, man. Sorry. That's okay. I had trouble with the Krebs cycle in grad school. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Why do we learn the Krebs cycle? Well, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I hear you with like the pendulums though. I, I think it's really interesting. I, I um yeah, it brought me back. So you mentioned the um the leg drop test. I was like, wait, what's the leg drop test? And then I was thinking about back when I was so this was twenty years ago, uh when I was seventeen, I bought these, it was like Don Beebe's power trim, like thigh weights. It was kind of like almost like I I like um uh, the exogen gear now, like the little like microweights you slap on, super surgical. But they, back in the day, it was like a waistband and these like one pound weights that kind of hung off it on your thigh. And I was trying to sprint faster with that thing. I mean, I was like 15 or 16 when I had it. But I remember it said something like, don't use this until you can do this test. And it was yeah, the, like that leg drop test, lie on your back, 
and so with straight legs lower down to the ground and your low back shouldn't come up and I and I was like okay it seems seems fair <laughs> I've ever tried to struggle with it a little bit and I hadn't honestly heard too much of it since you actually it's funny because it's like that's a good that's a good test like that's a good thing you should be able to do and for some reason I haven't seen or heard too much of it until you just mentioned it 20 years later but I yeah. it, it's like yeah if you can't do that and you're kind of how can you expect to have good reciprocity especially under fatigue I mean maybe you can figure it out for a short period of time but yeah. once fatigue starts to hit if you can't do that you're going to be in having some problems yeah and look some of our elite sprinters I've been fortunate I think three of the fastest 10 humans that are walking the planet earth right now we've worked with and they all did they all pass that test flying no i can't tell you that either so i can't tell you that that's the no that's the oh that's the key to unlocking speed is that the, no no they don't all do that the ones that have a lot of the, the issues though the neck you know the bottom 10 percent or 20 yeah it's rampant chronic hamstrings chronic spondy chronic 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 you know all those things uh yeah that's a test that i've it's been around for years and years and years, and it just keeps coming back. In fact, you, you use that one with, uh, you know, some of the um, some of the more functional movement screen type uh, tests, as well as some just some passive and active uh, range of motion at the knee and, and supine with uh, the split position. You can probably start to identify, hey, this this dude right here either had a hamstring already or is going to have a hamstring um, or gal or whatever. But we, we, we're not ready to go out there and. And say it's absolutely that way, but two or three of those things attacking that pelvic control with that ranging ranging of the motion, I and mean, yeah, you can begin to identify. Hey, these guys, this is a risky deal right here for this person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, people can put things together amazingly. Like athletes can be athletes, and they can put motion together. But yeah, just like that robustness and robustness with fatigue too. I, I can. Um, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, our time is we're, we're getting close to the end, so let me just kind of get wrap this up with a few last little questions here and. Actually, a quick comment. I'm glad you brought up the hip flexor thing because I, I I do think it's interesting. Like you had said, the ab, the deal with the the abs, and I remember when Mike Robertson was on the show back in the days talking about just get a set of abs, like just do basic basic ab work, and basically to be able to pull the pelvis into a decent spot along with the hamstrings. And I think it's interesting, and that's always stuck with me in the sense I think it's easy to be counterculture and say, oh, just abs are stupid, like you said, they're old school. But no, they it plays a role in stabilizing the pelvis. And sometimes we can do quote unquote dumb because we I think it's easy to view just doing abs as dumb stuff to yeah. just create a basic stability and ability to be new maintain a you know a floating neutral position. There's no, you know, like you said, there's no perfect neutral we need yeah. to be in. Uh, or move or move in the face of fatigue. Yeah. Anterior posterior, anterior posterior. I mean, you know, moving the pelvis as part of a of a so there's there's control there, right? Knowing where your ranges are and moving through those ranges. There's a learning thing that happens. Those spindles start to learn where your extremes of range are. And if you're constantly just locked into it, it doesn't learn. I mean, it actually unlearns where those extremes are. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not. A, I don't have a problem with it at all. Yeah, just that. I like how you just put that there. Just like just moving, just get into the range you're not in. Just control that range. Experience that range. Be in experience that, range. that yeah. range. Well said. Yeah, experience it. and then experience it in fatigue or under different asymmetrical loads or then you know yeah and it's not an absolute load probably it's more of that neuromuscular coordination load that's probably the first stopping point there and once you've got good control you know then yeah load it if you want to but you don't have to it's not a it's not something that you use you know three sets of five and you know the highest level periodization concepts for you know it's a little bit more on tipping more towards that motor control thing which maybe is 15 20 25 reps per set if you're you know for you guys at home that's that's what us as therapists learned is yeah 15 to 20 reps per set is what it sort of takes under, you know, under in a rehab setting, but we see it in the practical as well, that that's, and so that starts looking like, yeah, two sets of 20. Well, that starts looking like an ab exercise or, you know, yeah, you're also learning. It's a motor learning thing. And then your progression becomes, let's progress with that. Maybe fatigue becomes your driver of, of progression. So yeah, have some fun with that. Yeah. I like, I like what you said about hip flexor training too. I, I do remember it might've been, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, I just started seeing everyone crank their, you know, the wall stretch. Like that was like just exploding. And it's just, how about you just train your hip flexors in an explosive range of motion? How about that? <laughs> you know, like, and I, I, I love what you guys are doing there. As you're just saying that the, the thing floating around my head is like, man, I typically, I don't typically do like the active hip flexor stuff, but I know how important it is. It's almost always one of those things that's like, am I doing enough here? And I know I do. I like doing a lot of, like I mentioned, the isometric lunge stuff with an active back leg. I'd like to think that engages it in the stretch range. 
And then if you do maybe like a split j- jump quickly, you get something in with that motion. And I've always anecdotally and athletes like feel good after doing that. Um, uh, but I do think about that, how important that is. And um, I don't know, maybe I need to start, th- I need to start playing around with that a little bit more on the, on the, the, maybe the concentric element of that in the program. But I just, I've heard that from too many coaches that hip flexor training and, and obviously Randy Huntington's doing it. So um, that's definitely something I'm going to start wrapping my head around more at least is what is this, you know, what is this thing doing and helping out yeah. there? In our, and shameless plug, our speed course that'll be up on Inspire 360 here in a few months, we go into that, you know, pretty, pretty in depth is, is how do we train the hip flexors for speed in the open chain with full ranges and power and all that. And we have some specific sort of progressions there that we use that could be very helpful. So shameless plug there, uh, it'll be coming out soon. So, so hit me, uh, hit me on the website or something. If you're interested, I'll put you on the waiting list. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, yeah. I think about like Michael, yes, is like that leg drive thing. A lot of people have said, um, just like the cable knee drive in a specific range. A lot of people, uh, and working the, working the hip flexor, uh, with the hamstring together. I think that's another area. Mm-hmm. We, we did that with the Cowboys for, for many years with Joe Jurassic there and, and, uh, had great success with strengthening the hip flexor with the hamstring in that scissoring motion. Mm-hmm. And it's not being done. There's not a whole lot of good equipment to do it with. You kind of got to do some cables and some funky things, but, um, but that's really a, a really key concept to, uh, to hamstring, uh, recovery and rehab and mm-hmm. prevention, I think is, uh, uh, training the the hip flexor as you're training the the hamstring. One of the ways that we've done in the past is we've uh, we've connected a cable to the back leg on a slide squat, you know, a split slide squat. Oh yeah. Um, and so now we're loading it with dumbbells vertically. They're on a slide, uh, but now they're having to that yeah. leg is being pulled eccentrically. And so try that if you try that, try it on yourself first. Don't try it on athletes and try light loads because to, the next day it'll be your hamstring that tells you, holy crap. Mm. I mean, it's an instant stimulus to that front side hamstring and even yes. adductor. Um, you're not really strengthening. It's one of those control things, right? You're not strengthening really either one. Uh, you're, you're, you're backdooring it through some control. So give that one a try. Yeah, that makes sense. The other day I was playing around with, um, I had some music. I was just doing warmups and I like doing warmups to mute whatever beats on and trying to be a little creative. And I remember I was throwing in like a, and I've had athletes do this in the past, but maybe I did more of it or more explosively. Like, doing some lunges every lunge you're throwing in a few bounces like bounce 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 and then explode out of it into the next step and it's like that my hamstrings were so torched the next day from that just that like little eccentric hit at the bottom and then blowing out of that and i i do think about like yeah that just even the power of an intentional isometric split squat if you really want to get with the hamstring but the cable pressure that you know just having that band tension too on the back being such a helpful tool there um and you and use too i think we we have the benefit of having a bunch of Nike force plates in our facility. And we, we did a lot of our lunges and step ups and split squats on force plates to kind of see, mm. you know, how, how can we, what are these different angulations of, of force uh, do? And one of the things that we found for you guys, you coaches that are doing step ups or lunges um, is a, just a very simple application of some sort of horizontal pull, like a, a, a band, you know, like a, a basic band or a really light cable. Doesn't have to be much. Um, in fact, I think we were using the, I can't remember, not the micro bands. It's the one bigger than that for the, for the work that we did. And if you just apply that at about 75% stretch to something as simple as a step up or a slide lunge, uh, with the front leg on the, on the force plate, the force application tilted almost 30 degrees hmm. from vertical to here, the shin angle, when you're applying the force steepened, the torso angle steepened the thigh and rib cage approximation increased. And I'm not talking about a bunch of resistance. I'm just talking about, a, you know, the red bands at 75% pull at the waist. Now, when you load them with dumbbells or whatever vertically, you've sort of angulated that, um, you've angulated that force. And we saw it in our force plates. It was awesome to see that it doesn't take a lot. And all these kinematics start relating into kinetics that are a bit more horizontally loading. And that speaks to, Acceleration. I know your listeners are probably interested in the horizontal versus vertical loading. We do a lot of horizontal tweaking, uh, vertical load tweaks with these horizontal drivers. And yeah, I'm not going to publish that research. That's sure. not my game anymore. But I can tell you, with force plate data, it don't take much, and you can start angulating that force uh, that force production with very little uh, external resistance in the horse in the uh, in the horizontal. 
I love that. It's almost like applying the weighted sled principle to the weight room. It's like weighted sleds meet some actual, some things that are always vertical in the weight room. It's like, everything's always vertical. It's like, how can we get some of these forces to combine? I love that. Um, so just, I'll just do this last question super quick here and maybe just feel free to, to keep it concise if you like. But I just want to ask this in light of what you had just said uh, with the hip flexors and like maybe the, and mobility. And that's, I know you've talked about hip separation in fast sprinters, like the front knee, the back knee. I've heard Chris Corfus talk about that. Um, where is that to you? Like, obviously, we could just like stretch an athlete and say, oh, look, they're, you know, we're creating this separation, right? Like, how do you, um, does that come together or how do you see that? And how does that come together functionally for you uh, in practice? Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you a mistake I made. Uh, elite marathon, we worked with some elite marathon and elite 10,000 meter runners uh, at MJP. And the more elite they were, the more positive their Thomas test was. You remember the Thomas test where oh, yeah. you'd, you'd lay them on the plinth and you drop one leg and you, the therapist would push one leg up to your chest and you're supposed to have the bottom leg you know, <laughs> level, the thigh level with it. And every one of them that were good, and I'm talking about good elite, were positive there. In other words, it bounced up like this. Yeah, bad hip flexor mobility according to that test, right? Yeah. So what did I do? I'm, I'm King Smart smarter than everybody. What do I do? I try to get them to have a normal Thomas test. Dumbest, dumbest move ever. Okay. The Thomas test, again, that's a normal human being thing that we, you know, Hey, this is the way it should be based on what have you studied these freaks? That's one of the ways that they stay efficient with their backside kinematics is to have a hyper tuned, uh, so as if I, if I anesthetized them, you could take it all the way down. It's resting tonicity. It's a resting stiffness that's in there. The last thing I want to do is drive that down. That's one of the things that's helping them recoil on the backside mechanics. Um, so, you know, stretch, stretch, stretch to get it to some normal. I think that, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, the, uh, the, the mobility tests that we, we still use some of those tests. The, the more key for our elite sprinters in a lot of cases is, is, sym is symmetry. Right. So we actually we have some that will be very positive and others, you know, will have an asymmetry on one versus the other. I am kind of a believer in creating some symmetry in that test and um, whether that's, you know, heightening the tension, the stiffness in one hip flexor. Believe it or not, we've done that. We've we've done some things to stiffen the resting tension of that hip flexor on the side that is down in some runners. But I can tell you what we see. Um, they're strong. Their hip flexors are strong. And when they're in that splits position, um, the, the, the hip differentiation, especially on the back, on the down leg is not as great, uh, as we used to think it's not the range of motion, you know, maybe is five, 10 degrees past neutral I, in the I fast. Yeah. In the extension, rolling. in leg extension, when the, on the stance leg, when it's extending, they're not like getting into crazy hyperextension is what you're saying. It's just a few no, degrees past. And, and there's terrible. no force in the fast ones. I mean, these are the, the fast freaks that we get to see a fast freaks. I mean, not normal people, not you and me, fast freaks. They're not putting much pressure into the ground after neutral, after Z, after dead, mm -hmm. dead pan center. They're not putting a whole lot of force into the ground past zero on the down leg hip. You know where they're putting it in? In front of. Yep, right before. Yeah. Dead pan center. And that's that impulse. That's where they're putting it into the ground. After that, yeah, they're rolling off. But the ones that suck, the, one, the sprinters <laughs> that are always getting hamstrings or the distance runners that are always getting stress fractures, they're the ones that are still putting pressure in the ground after, you know, after they've reached, you know, yeah, they're pushing. Of mass, yeah, yeah, it's like, like David uh, Weck would say, they're pushing. Like it's, it's they're pushing. Yeah. yeah. The, the game is over. The punch for speed. It's over. It's point two, you know. And if that's happening, if, if that impulse is happening too far underneath you or behind you, yeah, you're you're stumbling. Um, if it's happening too far in front of you, problematic. But I can tell you, these elite sprinters at top speed, they're not hitting directly under their body. They're out about six inches underneath their center mass in front of yes, in front. That's so happens. many people. I don't know why people say right below. Like it's they hit in front. Like they I, hit in front. Yeah. They over they yes. overstride, and it's not. Again, the distance, yeah, it's six, five, six inches in elite sprinters, some of the guys that, and gals that you saw in, on the Olympics. However, it's what they do in that first mm -hmm. 200 milliseconds that is so unique and is it doesn't happen underneath them and it doesn't happen behind them. It does happen in front of them. 
Um, and that has everything to do, I think, with that. If you're, if you're too much back here, you know, you start to rob Peter to pay Paul mm-hmm. with your pelvis. But is that because they're not doing enough? Is that because they're not doing enough on the impulse? You know what I mean? Is, yeah. is that another compensation? We're going to go in and try to fix them because they're, they're, they've got too much, you know, backside mechanics. Right? Is that a backside problem? Or is that a frontside mechanics problem? I tend to believe you got backside problems with that where it's overextended and long pushes and all that stuff. It ain't a backside problem you're trying to fix. It's that negative foot speed, that throwing the hammer down. I start there. I start the opposite. And in a lot of cases, as you said, with the pelvis, you start seeing when you start focusing on that, hey, let's get more earlier. Let's get more earlier. They kind of begin to autocorrect and go, oh, really? Okay, to do that well. I got to kind of get, you know, I kind of got to get this pelvis lined up where I can throw some hammers earlier instead of later. And there is some auto sort of auto correction that happens when you don't focus on the bad stuff, backdoor it. I say front, I guess that'd be a front door. Don't backdoor it. Don't focus on that. Go up there and focus on the front. And again, that goes all the way back to what we talked about before hip flexors, right? Hip flexor strength, hip flexor control, hip flexor power. Um, it sets a lot of things really, really up for that better hip or more functional hip disassociation. And, and by the time they get back to touchdown and maximum speed, the backside hip, it's forward of center every, you know, every single time, unless they're fatigued and in the face of fatigue, it starts drifting to mm-hmm. neutral or even back here. <laughs> but that that's the process we look at is that it's that scissoring. I know a lot of your listeners probably, you know, it's the scissoring effect. It's not one than the other. It's an, it's a scissoring and that scissoring farther back and more delayed you are here, that scissoring becomes happening, starts happening back here. And to drive that scissor, it's down and back here, it's, it's forward. No, it's not up. It's not hip flexion. It's hip, it's hip flexion, but it's, it's here. It's forward that that brings it back up. And so that those scissoring drills um, become, become paramount for that, for that hip, uh, to drive that hip disassociation more. So anyway, yeah, rabbit hole there. But no. it's, it's cool stuff. And we don't know. Hey, look, less listeners, I'm telling you stuff. I don't know. I don't have the answer, um, but I'm working on it. Uh, I know we didn't get to talk about deceleration. That's another area that I'm, I'm anti-deceleration, to be honest with you. I think we're doing it. We're doing us a disservice uh, by training people to slow down. So I agree with whoever you talked about, if that was David Weck or whoever you talked yeah, about. We've had before. some others talk about that too. Yeah. During bar. Yeah. I believe um, in it too. Why, why we have to do dece- It's all about the force. Anti-rotate. We must decelerate. It's like, no, we need to re-speed up faster, redirect, you know, impulses. Re- redirect, redirect yeah. the thrusters. And I think that's where we're, we're heading in our change of direction. Training is more around this concept of let's, let's use the thrusters to change direction and not try to teach people how to decelerate or slow themselves down or catch themselves. Because we know what that's doing mm-hmm. now, we know what that's doing both structurally, uh, things like the ACL, uh, as well as functionally to things like stiffness that protect the ACL. Yet we're training that. Yeah, tell me why? Because we, well, it's just semantics. It's really not. It's really not semantics when you look at how we're how we're doing it and how maybe we should look at critically look at ways of changing direction and kind of get get rid of that deceleration concept altogether. And I know that seems like shock jock stuff. We can get into that maybe on a future podcast, the course that I, I told you about. We get into that a, a lot. Um, we get into how strong is strong enough and different types of lifts and some of the things that I know we didn't have time to get into today. But uh, but yeah, I, I don't want any of the listeners to think that I'm some, you know, some guy that's got it all figured out. I've been blessed over 28 years to be around a lot of amazing, freaky athletes, thousands, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands. Um, and I've learned that um, that the human body is an amazing uh, an amazing thing. And all of us that get to work with athletes uh, or patients, we are shepherds to this adaptation. We are not driving adaptation. Don't kid yourselves, folks, please don't. We are shepherds. The athlete, the human body, that's the magic maker. We just, we're in a position to just kind of, kind of nudge it along, you know, a little of this, a little of that, nudge it along. Um, and I'm fine with that. I am totally fine with that. I check my ego at the door and say, look, I'm just here to leverage these skill sets of what we know now to optimize what's probably already happening um, with this, with this athlete. And, and I think if we go into this, what everything I just said with that sort of grain of salt, 
it gives me confidence. I mean, it takes the pressure off of me in a lot of cases uh, because I'm not, I'm not the most important. I'm not the most important part of the equation. The athlete is their human body is natural adaptation is. And, and I think when we kind of sit in that seat, it gives me some confidence in knowing that we don't know <laughs> and we will never know um, about this human body, but it's, it's a great profession and I, and I enjoy it. And I enjoy not knowing more now than, than ever before. Yeah. I, I like to think of it as leaving it up to the genius of the miracle of the athlete. And that takes the pressure off of us. You know, we, yeah, like you said, love it. We're the shepherds. I always say the guy, but I love the shepherd too. I'll keep that in my memory bank. So the Sherpas. Yeah. We're just yeah. more like the Sherpa. They're the, the one Sherpa, that are going to yeah, summit Sherpa. Everest and they're probably going to do it without us. Maybe they don't get there <laughs> the, the way that is the most efficient, but they're going to get to their Everest. Um, and not knowing what Everest is, I think there is no peak. There's a fight heart. Michael's old coach used to talk about, we're not trying to get him to peak because you don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a cloud over peak of Mount Everest. You don't know where that peak is. So don't kid yourself and think you're peaking an athlete. Um, you don't know where their peak is. And on that day where that peak is or uh, where their realization of their potential is for that peak. So let's not set those limiters on them either. Let's, let's assume for a minute that we don't know how high this peak is. Uh, and I think that's a real level set on humility uh, of what our role is and in a good way. Yeah, 100%. Wait, Lance, I know you got to go. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time, answering the questions, taking some extra time. I appreciate all your insights and from working with so many awesome athletes and then your humi- humility and your, your uh, love for learning as well. Really appreciate uh, having you, man. Joel, thank you. And thanks, coaches. Uh, reach out to me on an email uh, or through the website if you've got uh, any questions or want to tell me I'm crazy or want to get involved in some of our, our ongoing education. But thanks for the opportunity, Joel. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for another show, and we'll see you next week.